Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Andy Schell and his Swedish wife Mia own a sailboat, the Isbjörn. Around that boat they have built a fantastic business. And just like me, Andy runs a podcast. With very few exceptions, Andy interviews people who, just like himself, are fully dedicated to sailing. So if you are dreaming about an exciting life at sea, you should definitely check out and subscribe to the podcast On The Wind. My name is Magnus Ormestad and this is the Swedish outdoor podcast Husky. This episode is a bit different than the usual ones. We release the exact same episode in both Husky and On The Wind and it is perhaps a bit more of a discussion than a regular interview. We share our thoughts about our different projects, about daring to follow our dreams, and about life in the mountains and at sea. Find out more about this episode and of previous episodes at huskypodcast.com, where you also will find links to Andy and Mia's business. Follow them on Instagram at the handle 59NorthSailing, and on Facebook you can look them up at 59North. Husky is made with the support from Naturkompaniet and the new holiday club in Åre. You, uh, why did you change the name from 59 to uh, <laughs> On the Wind? Well, 59 North was always just a, um, uh, it was a default name because I couldn't think of anything better. And talking about branding, it was like I wanted to, well, my brand is 59 North, so I might, have, might as well have something that stays in that line but mainly it was because i couldn't think of anything better and then have you seen my tv show i actually have no, no. one episode published one more about to be published i'll show it to oh, you afterwards really? but we had a brainstorm about what to call the tv show which is essentially a tv version of this and we came up with on the wind so then i just branded the podcast the same thing because i like the name but wasn't it did, did you to kind of rebrand the entire back catalog or something or? i didn't rebrand it i just no? kept it as the evolution i called it on the wind is the evolution of 59 north mm-hmm. and took it from there so it's the same podcast feed and you just look you go through like the archive and 
there's different artwork depending on what stage of the progression it's been in. But now it's it's set. So I've started recording, by the way. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how did you end up on a on a sailboat the first time? <sighs> I've told this. I'm going to give you the short version because I've told this story <laughs> a lot on my <laughs> podcast. Okay, but okay, okay. My parents got me into it, and I didn't have a choice. Um, when I was literally in diapers is when I first got on sailboats. And we're from the countryside in Pennsylvania, and it's like two and a half hours to the Chesapeake Bay where my dad and mom always kept their boat. So it kind of was by default, and it's just it was what we did in the summertime. And that's uh, we, we're talking ocean now. Not no, some... Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah, it's yeah. basically the equivalent of sailing in the archipelago when it's a little bit more open water. Like where the boat was... It was a place called Rock Hall on the Chesapeake near Annapolis, Maryland, which is where sort of our U.S. base is now. The bay is about four miles wide there. So you can, you know, it's half hour sail across to the other side and back again. Pretty shallow water. And it's long. It's 130 miles long and not similar to the archipelago in that there's a lot of little creeks and stuff you can explore in the side. So that was my sort of childhood growing up on the boat in that setting. Um And I don't know what, at some point I just, I wanted to go further. I didn't want to keep coming back to the same place we started from. And that was like a big thing. That was like, the, okay, I have to get this out of my system. And the long of the short of it, it's, I appreciate that sort of day sailing way more now than I did before. Because now I know I've, I've completed those goals along the way and I can, I can relax a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. But is that is, in a way, kind of your heritage? I mean, did your did your your parents did they sail as well growing up? It's like runs back in the salt water runs in your family. No, not not really. Um, my parents, the first time they got hooked was on their honeymoon. Actually, they were in their mid twenties, I think, and they chartered a boat out of Fort Lauderdale with a captain and a couple friends. And they went over to the Bahamas. And my mom always used to like to say that the instant the captain turned the engine off and they were moving just with the power of the wind, that's when she got hooked. And then they had dreams of going cruising and they bought a bought a 26-foot sailboat they kept on the bay for a while, learned the ropes, and then bought a 32-foot boat and sailed, spent took the winter off and went down to the Bahamas. This was in 1979. And they'd met a bunch of families on the way with young kids. This is before I was born. And they said, we have to do this again with our kids when we have kids. My mom always had a dream of raising us on the boat, moving, you know, selling oh. everything, moving aboard and doing that. But my dad, it just didn't happen that way because my dad had his own business and they were pretty content, had a close-knit, immediate family. And, um, and I wouldn't say it was like a, a regret. It was just that, okay, instead of doing that, we'll, we'll take a year off. So my fourth grade was spent living on the boat with wow. a younger sister. We left Annapolis in October, cruised down the east coast of the U.S., hopped over to the Bahamas, which is only 60 miles from Florida, from Miami, spent the winter cruising in the Bahamas, and then came back again in the, in May, I think, of that year, 93. 94, we came back. 93, we left. 94, we came back. And that was my that was my fourth grade education, and that's that that But like that and home being like homeschooled. Yeah, or we were homeschooled. On the wow. Boat. Yeah, I remember we had to read. One of the things was we each had to keep a journal, and I was nine when we left, so my journal was more or less comprehensible because I was of the age where I could 
write. My sister's journal is hilarious to read now going back because it's it's comprehensible, but it's not, not very well written. It's written like a seven-year-old or six-year-old, whatever, however old she was. And it's just really, really funny. Uh, you know, for example, every night the routine was sort of we had dinner, read a book and went to bed. And it was like that repeated itself. It was very truthful as only a kid can write. It's like, wow, you guys sounded like you had an exciting time, had hot dogs for dinner and went to bed. <laughs> so it's fun to reflect on that. That was a big part of it. Um, I remember doing a book report on Jurassic Park, the book, and I was like fourth grade. And I remember that's like the first adult book I read. Well, oh. Michael Crichton. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but that trip, that trip is what I attribute the rest of my life to. Like that's the first time I have real memories as a human. Because like up until, I had a very stable childhood. I, my dad still lives in the house I grew up in. He built it the year I was born. So year to year, everything was more or less the same until then. That was like stood out in my mind as I really remember specific things from that year and that really impacted me like how everything smelled like and the feelings and touching everything and more the, f the feeling i guess you know the f the feeling of adventure and that sort of there is something else like you don't have to do what everybody else does it sounds more it's it probably wasn't like that when i was a kid i think i just liked being out of school <laughs> <laughs> but that's how i remember it yeah. and that's what's influenced me to follow the career i have since i think But you, you never had kind of a like teenage, like that you wanted to rebel against all that and decide to be in like no. an accountant and <laughs> I never want to sail again. And I was, no, I was never a rebel. I was never, a re I was the opposite of a rebellious teenager in, in every sense. I was a mama's boy, but uh, I actually went to college for golf. I was going to be a, a golf professional. But sailing saved you. Sailing saved me. Yeah, I worked one summer at a country club, and I just pff, couldn't stop. I still play golf for fun, but it wasn't. I'm not. I'm physically not able to focus on something that I don't really care about. So whatever it is, if I can, if I care about it, I'll do it. If I don't care about it, I don't want to do it, and I'm just very lazy. So I'm, in one sense, the laziest, most productive person there is because... <laughs> Things I want to do, I'm great at. Things I don't have an interest in, just doesn't. You don't happen. see the point in it. Not, no, I see the point. I just don't. Hmm. Sometimes, like I don't know, I just I'm I'm generally a lazy person unless it's something I'm really passionate about. Then I go at it 150. So I think that's what it was with um, with golf. I just didn't care enough to put the time because no matter what you end up doing, you have to put effort into it, and I can't do that unless uh, it's. I'm very selfish in that way, I guess too. So, but um, uh, about education and so on. Did you uh, did you go to like uh, university or something? Or the yeah, equivalent. To, no, I went to I went to school, and I didn't go to like I didn't know I was gonna do a career. Doing a career in sailing never occurred to me until I graduated college. So in the U.S., basically everybody goes straight from high school to college, yeah. which is exactly what I did. I think I changed majors six times. <laughs> At one point, my major was a uh, double major in. German and international business. Well, still speaking in German? No. The Swedish <laughs> has buried the German deep, <laughs> oh, yeah. deep down in there oh, somewhere. Yeah, yeah that's got to have been... Uh, wasn't that a bit helpful, like learning Swedish? Helpful with German? Yeah, a no. bit. No? I mean, maybe. If I went maybe to Germany, I think it would come up. back. But like, I just... Mm. 
the Swedish, like I said, it's it's on top, and the Germans buried in there somewhere. But I don't. I mean, it's mm. one of those things you use it or lose it, and it's it's gone. Yeah, I I mean, I I studied uh, Chinese for two years. Oh, really? Yeah, Chinese and uh, political science, international relations. So it's also very out there, sort of. <laughs> but I haven't, you know, haven't been back to that. Yeah, yeah. I only I've only been to Germany even once, and I ordered a beer in German. I oh. can still do that. Oh. But uh, but no, the sailing thing didn't occur to me until I, I majored in. I ended up majoring in tourism management, um, and that required a twelve credit internship. So one full semester had to be an internship to graduate. And I had two opportunities. I could either go, and at that point I knew I wanted to do. I didn't know I wanted to do something in sailing, but that was an interest, and I was like, well, I'm going to try and go somewhere on an internship where I can sail. That sounds cool. So the Navy has a program called Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. And morale? Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. Okay. So it's run by civilians, and it's basically leisure time for naval people. And they ha- every base around the world has this division, as far as I know. Like, but like active, now active. Yeah. A naval. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. So if you're deployed in Japan, because that's where I was going to go, they had a in, at the base in Japan because it was on the ocean. They had a sailing center, like a, sa- a club med for sailors. Kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the you'd live on the navy base, and then you'd teach sailing to the naval guys during their time off. And the way it worked, though, you had it was they ranked the applicants, and then they'd give you your choice based on where they ranked you. Well, I happened to be the first. I got first dibs on where I wanted to go, and I said. And, but I, at the same time, I'd also applied for an internship on the Chesapeake working on a schooner that um, does tourist trips down there. And I said to the Navy people, I said, well, this sounds really cool, but like, can I have some time to think about it? And they said, yeah, you can let us know in 24 hours. <laughs> it's like, great. They have a way different time perspective than yeah. other people. <laughs> so I even called, I called the woodwind up and I said, um, hey, I have this other opportunity. They hadn't even interviewed me yet. They said, well, fair enough, you have a good resume, but we're not going to tell you on the phone. Like, we need to interview you and do our due diligence first. So I said no to the Japan guys and ended up working on the woodwind. But that was that was where I realized, like, you can actually make a career in sailing because my internship was paid and there was a direct path to, like, get a captain's license and do that sort of thing. And that's when it first occurred to me, oh, maybe this could be cool. So that was the that was the combination of, okay, here's something I'm passionate about. I didn't realize you could make a living out of it, but actually maybe you can. And then, then it kind of went from there. But apart from sailing, have you had a, because I know you're a skier as well. Mm. Um, so the, what role did nature play like for you growing up? I was always outside. I mean, that was, I grew up water skiing in the summertime, snow skiing in the wintertime, sailing you had a uh, like ski resorts and mountains close by uh crappy ones yeah a l- small maybe ones. a little bit bigger than hammerbybacken okay okay so in, that's on that scale yeah bigger than that mm. but um an hour from our house is where i learned how to snow ski in the winter time we used to and it was cool because my dad and my uncle and my cousins and stuff we, who all skied together they were real gung-ho about it so like when we went skiing we'd wake up at five o'clock in the morning and be the first person on the lift that day and the last person off and that was really cool um and they were competitive water skiers growing up and stuff and and, and everything was always like full-on hardcore <laughs> and i was given a choice in in middle school as far back as i guess elementary school even you, i either had to play a sport or be in the band 
do I had to do some extracurricular oh, really? activity. My parents said mm-hmm. like you got to do something. You can't just mm-hmm. come home after school and be here. So I always chose sports. Uh, so I played baseball and I played tennis and I played golf and I played football and it was always outside. I mean that wasn't really a a punishment for you. No, not at all. <laughs> I mean I played video games too. I yeah. had all the video game systems and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but there was always ample opportunity to be outside. And I was spoiled. My dad had a ski boat and they had the means to take us snow skiing and stuff. So, right. um, yeah, there was definitely that part of it. But it was always outside. But you were never afraid of like, um, well, now I'm going to focus on sailing. So I can't like partake in in like these other activities. Now it's now it's all 100% like sailing. Yeah, that's still like that's still a, a problem for you. Well, with skiing particularly, like if it wasn't for sailing, I would live in the mountains somewhere mm. and do. I would have done something. I don't know how that would have developed, but it would have been something with that because that's my other major. And it's not just the act of skiing; it's being in the mountains. Yeah, that's you know as much of it as as the act of skiing. That said, actually snow skiing downhill when I'm physically going down a mountain that is by far the most fun i ever have had playing sports like mm-hmm. that just puts you in the moment and like i love that but it's about living living it's a lifestyle thing too i mean we've set up this sailing thing as a lifestyle as opposed to a career so that's important to me as well i forget what the question was oh me me too <laughs> <laughs> never mind but it isn't like i often think that there's a lot of similarities between and maybe we will uh, touch upon that later, but that there's a lot of similarities between sailing and alpinism. I know, with everything from, like, the rope handling yeah. <laughs> and well, the, the fact that you, uh, that you are highly exposed, but you do it in a, in a super controlled manner and that you have to kind of tread lightly and tread slowly and, uh, like, uh, really, you have to really master the the way of um i don't know like handling yourself in in these elements no you're exactly right and it's and this is the reason why i think you know to have you on my podcast you're not a sailor you've done some sailing things and and but i've never it's so embarrassing i've been on a sailboat sailboat but we never we never even raced sails but you understand what it's like you you lived on it for a few days right oh yeah yeah on siggy's boat we'll get to that but so but the point is you hit the nail on the head. It's exact. You're you are learning to live with and in nature at its most in its most rawest form, and how to not make it about you versus nature. It's it's making yeah. a more holistic approach of okay, the weather is what it is. Here's the tools we have to deal with it. Whether you're in the ocean or on a mountaintop doesn't really make a difference. It's the same philosophy. And then some of the specifics, like rope handling and stuff, like mm-hmm. you say, is actually transferable, those skills. But it's mainly the mental side of it. In fact, our sort of tagline for the passage business that we run is um, sharing the wisdom of the high seas with those wise enough to seek it out. And I stole that word for word, except for one, <laughs> of from a backcountry skiing operation oh, in, wow. in Canada. Uh, it was called, it was I forget what the company is, but... The line was sharing the wisdom of the backcountry mm. with those wise enough to seek it out, and I was like, "It, it's exactly the same mm. thing." Um, but I'm curious to to your background. I mean, I, you, and I have sort of had p- 
parallel tracks with regards to you've got this outdoor podcast that's been a passion of yours that's allowed you to do all these other cool opportunities and the podcast I started has a, literally allowed me to build a business on top of it. But where did, what was your growing up like and how did you relate to that as a kid? Um, well, I come from the uh, the Swedish countryside and it really puts us like in the middle of Sweden more or less, like southern southern part kind of what ta- is there what's it was it called well the the district is called dalana okay um and it's like dense forests mm-hmm. uh, like pine forests and uh so like we were just up in um salen the lake yeah it's that's that that's dalana isn't it that's dalana yeah. yeah but it's like three hours south okay. um salen is like three hours drive north from where i grew up okay um but yeah, that's um, that's where I grew up, and 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 we really like when you went sailing. We went out in the forest like all year round, like wintertime skiing. Uh, we had this old snow snowmobile, and we went out like every weekend, I think, and uh, like out like picking berries in the autumn, picking mushrooms in the autumn, and went like swimming in the summertime, and and skiing, and uh, I don't know, bird watching, <laughs> and uh, joining my. My father, as he went like hunting, hunting for for elks and uh, roe deers and so on. So that was, I mean, just going out like watching for animals and 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 uh, out hiking in the mountains. So that's that's where I come from, and that's um, the really the base of my passion for the for the outdoors. I think very uh, uh, very uh, not a lot of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. But a lot of experience, I think. What What did your parents do? Uh, my well, my when I was a kid, actually, my father worked as a like a ranger, like a ranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, when I was really small, my mom was at home, and then later she she started working like at a li- library and stuff. But but my dad really um, he gr- like uh, he worked in the forest from when he was like sixteen or seventeen or something. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really uh, the base of the family, I think. Is that outdoor, foresty, mushroom picking, berry picking? That's very Swedish, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Because I, I or I'm wondering if it's just because that's who that's those are the Swedes I've like Mia's <laughs> has a could tell almost exactly the yeah. same story. They just grew up playing in the forest. Mm-hmm. Is is that a Swedish thing, or is that just because you guys grew up in the countryside? <sighs> Mainly, maybe because we grew up in the countryside. I don't see uh, a lot of people go like berry picking in the in, s- in the Stockholm suburbs. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, at least not these days. But but at the same time, isn't it like isn't the city like completely deserted on midsummer and during the yeah? That's true. Break? That's true. I mean, and of course, I mean, just that we have this thing called allemansretten, uh, mm. like the. Uh, I know you you are better probably better to explain it uh than I am that but the right you have um you have the right to uh camp out like mm-hmm. in nature like wherever you want uh, as long as you don't of course cause, cause any damage and you leave leave nothing but uh footprints behind and so mm-hmm. on uh but it's very uh it's it is a, a um a very important part of the uh the Swedish psyche I think uh, and I mean, we went like cross-country skiing in school, uh, for yeah. instance, like wintertime and so on. And of course, that's uh, from an international perspective. Of course, that's fairly unique. I think. 
Well, I think what else is unique, just from my own observations, having spent a fair amount of time here now, for example, you go to a elementary school. We picked up our niece and nephew the other day to take them to a movie, and it was snowing outside. It was probably minus five, but everyone was outside, just yeah. dressed for it. Like, mm. the elements, how, how does that play into your relationship with being outside? Because you have such a long winter here, and... and yeah. You know, most Americans would think, well, that's ridiculous to have the kids outside on a day like that. It's, I, there's, I think there's only one way to, to you got to accept it, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's the, uh, that's the thing. And I mean, and that's going back to, uh, to where I grew up. Um, we had this, this house and the oldest part of the house is from the, like the 17th, 17th century. And uh, it's like a wooden house and like wooden stove, wood stoves, wooden mm-hmm. stoves, not wooden stoves, but <laughs> wood stove, yeah. <laughs> wood stoves. Yeah. Um, and we had like every winter, as every time we had like like a storm, we we like we knew that we were gonna have a blackout, <laughs> and we would have like blackouts for like sometimes like a couple of days. Yeah. But uh, we had these wood stoves and we had like candles and we had our own well, so we were. You know, we were fine, and um, and of course that uh, I think that affected me uh, a lot more than I could imagine. I think so. Like when I turned like like turning thirty, I think I really started to miss that life, like living in Stockholm. Uh, Stockholm is not the uh, it's not a uh, the biggest city in in the world, but I mean it's still kind of a fairly big city, and you live a certain certain life here, but. I really started to long back to that, the, mm-hmm. like the simple life outdoors and so on. As a kid growing up, though, was that stuff like, were, were the inconveniences of that life annoying? We didn't think of that at all, okay. actually. No. Yeah. We just dealt with it. Yeah. <laughs> But, it, I mean, we, don't, we definitely didn't, we did not suffer through it. The reason I ask is because <clears throat> the thing, like I was, like I said, I was a lazy, am a lazy person, but... We live in a farmhouse now where the house is heated by hot water that runs through pipes that you have to heat from a wood stove out in the shed that's 50 yards from the house. And teenage me would have hated the chore of going out to do that. But now that's my routine in the morning. I get up and the first thing I do is go outside and make a fire. And I love that. And like, I wonder if you took that for granted, that sort of harder lifestyle in the countryside as a kid and now now that you live in an apartment and have it relatively easy, that's why you miss it. I don't know. And and I wish, a, a, a big part of me wish that I would say that, uh, that as a kid that I always like helped out like chopping woods and that was a natural part, but it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We yeah. were too spoiled by yeah. mom and dad and yeah. they did everything. And of course, Uh, the teenage me is probably glad for that, but mm. the the old me is uh, the outdoor hipster part of me is is, is sad that I didn't have to uh, to learn the basic like axe skills as a kid. <laughs> It's funny. I asked uh, <laughs> my birthdays next week, and Mia's like, "What do you want for your birthday?" An so axe. I did. I did. I want an axe. <laughs> so hopefully, she's getting me an axe for my birthday. <clears throat> um, so what did you? I mean, you you've had a sur- sur- presumably a circuitous path to get to where you are now. So what did you do in high school and college and what did you think you wanted to do? I never really and I, I don't think I actually I never really had a plan like uh I never had a 
like a serious plan. I, in one way, I could have used someone like older, like mentoring me. But then again, if I if I had that, I wouldn't be sitting here, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But uh, I I do remember I wanted to become a journalist as a as a like I don't know thirteen fourteen years old or something. Do you I wanted why. Be- no, probably it seemed cool run run around with a camera. I don't know. Yeah, but I've always been kind of a storyteller. I think really into books, like reading, and I've always had like good grades in Swedish, and uh, always I always got like like very good uh, good like re- reviews and and grades for for for. Uh, uh, like short stories and stuff. Okay, like yeah. uh, made up stuff, like fiction. Yeah, like fiction. Really? Yeah, yeah as a kid, yeah. Huh. Um, and uh, so I guess I was kind of a dreamer in many ways. And I, for some reason, I was into, uh, I don't know, Far East Asia, like China, Japan. And I uh, I, I remember training like jujitsu for like six hmm. years or something. Okay. And I was into that thing and so at some point I thought it would be a good idea to study Japanese so I applied for Japanese and my second hand uh, alternative was Chinese and I, I I started Chinese because I didn't get ups- uh, I didn't uh, end up in the uh, Japanese class and this is university at Stockholm University okay so I started with that and and then again I didn't have like a I really don't know what I can't remember that I had a, a, a crystal clear plan of what I wanted to do with that. But I studied that for one year in Stockholm and then one year in Shanghai because we had the uh, opportunity to, to go abroad and study um, like two semesters in, in Shanghai. And at that point, I think I if you if you had asked me then, I would say that I wanted to work in like like the State Department or the equivalent of that in, in, in Sweden. Really? Yeah, with with focus on like East Asian affairs or mm-hmm. like something like that. I, I'm not I'm not good with languages. I'm 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 very good in, um, I'm like a parrot, you know. I can <laughs> I can imitate like very well, yeah. <laughs> and like learn stupid phrases and so on. And the pronunciation the pronunciation is my strong side, and the grammar is like really my poor side. That's so funny you say that because. I have the same thing, especially with Sweden, Swedish. Yeah. I've never taken like a formal Swedish class, but I'm around Mia's family and people like people that speak really good Swedish. So I, I'm good at imitating it, like mm. you say. I think when I talk to people in Swedish, I think they think I'm better in Swedish than I am because it I pronounce things well. Because you know all the correct curse words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's that's funny. Um, and then uh, coming home. After Shanghai, I took like uh, I studied something called East Asian, the East Asian program. So it was like history, politics, and economy about China, Korea, and Japan, and that was super interesting, really, really, really interesting. And at that point, that was the autumn of two thousand and one, and that was September two thousand and one, and the nine uh, eleven happened, mm-hmm. and that really sparked my interest in international relations and politics. Um, so I decided to study political science and I did that for like three years or something. Did you get a degree? Yeah. Okay. So I have like, I don't know, two or three degrees or something. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I never used one of them. 
but but I, I was like for some time for quite a long time was kind of bitter of the uh that i had these like six years of uh university degrees uh, six years of university studies and i really couldn't shape something out of that uh, it was just a bunch of like i don't know knowledge like yeah. um that i couldn't i couldn't I, I wasn't able to focus it on something and i ended up working in like i don't know f- finance the finance sector but not at a high level but kind of okay. a, no, administrative so level. you had a, a real job for a while uh, i had a real job yeah. yeah and how long did that last uh four years or something four really? years i think yeah at what point did you decide like i gotta get out of this at the the point where i like smashed the keyboard <laughs> at my office and i'm a very uh i'm a very calm calm guy i'm 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 not, I'm not violent at all and i can not i didn't smash it but i would like slam my fist into it so the uh, like the pegs and everything like flew <laughs> <laughs> and i knew that well this is this is enough for me <laughs> but then i had started this this podcast this husky uh podcast i had that going and i kind of knew that well i could try this out or an so offshoot of that the po- the podcast was sort of a hobby that you just did outside of work yeah, on your own time yeah because i i started um i know this was 2012 2013 and uh like one or two years before that i had started listening a lot to uh like swedish radio uh, on the go like um, i think it was i don't know if it was a smartphone or mp3 player but i i listened to a lot of like documentaries mm-hmm. uh, like radio documentaries like out walking like walking for like two hours listening and and i really like got like really sucked into this uh it was so intimate and i really loved the to kind of zoom out but still uh i would walk around in like the forest or in the city but i was like in my own kind of bubble Mm -hmm. and i really enjoyed and still enjoy that a lot and I had never heard of podcast at that point. And this was maybe, I don't know, 2011, maybe 2010, 2011. And then, and then the podcast thing started happening in Sweden. And after a while, like we were, I was out running with two friends and more or less out of the blue, I got this idea that, Hey, shouldn't we should do a podcast? Like, and I, I, I didn't have a plan at that point. Like, I think I wanted it to be about like uh, not adventure racing, but kind of uh, outdoor sports where we would kind of discuss. Okay, so what's going on now? Like this like a month, newsy type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I think it was a good thing that it didn't take off. <laughs> uh, and my friend was like, oh, "No, we we don't know what you're talking about. Keep running." <laughs> <laughs> And like six months later, I had this like epiphany or something. I had really, well, this is how it should be. And I know that if I do it like this, if I if if I do it like the way I want it to be, I know that it will, it would work. I know it would be well received, and I know that people would listen to it. And yeah, and then I just made it happen. <laughs> how did? Th- how did you make the decision to quit your job or did you how did that go down it kind of i don't know it really i had no i had no other option at that point i 
I I don't dare to think what would what would have happened if I if I stayed there because I was unwell at that point. Like I didn't I wasn't I wasn't a happy man. Cuz this is the hardest thing I try to pin down whether cuz a lot of people that listen to my podcast are people that want to either take a one or two year sabbatical no. and then come back to work or quit for good. Mm. And that's always the hardest decision. How do you get over that hump? Or it's people younger people that are in the same situation you were where they have a real job and, and hate mm. themselves and their job. And so how do you get over that hump? I mean, it, it sounds I mean like for me, actually for me, I mean, I was at that point, I was like, I didn't have any fam- uh, family or anything. I was just single on like by myself and I didn't have any responsibilities to anyone. And actually it was down to that point that I could, I remember like thinking like from a philosophical point of view, I could not motivate spending this much time and energy on something that that I detest. Yeah. No, if from a feel, I you know it would be uh it wouldn't be uh, uh it, it's like a it's like a insult to to life <laughs> from like a universal perspective. Yeah. I was at that point. So I uh, so it was actually it was so easy to 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 get that you know to do that decision. And I think I had I had done because I started it like uh like February March or something 2013 and I think I quit my job like that autumn. So I had done like one or two episodes I I wasn't paid for those but I think but I think I did like kind of corporations. Uh so I knew that you know that it would be a possibility to actually make money from this. Mhm. So you, <clears throat> excuse me, you went into it from the get-go as this is going to be a potential career avenue for me, not just... Well, yes and no. I okay. mean, I've never done anything to, like, kind of maximize profit. Like, yeah. I will do this to, 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 to get money because, you know, I've had people asking me, or still, still, still get people asking me, like, oh, I want to do a podcast, like, and, you know, to give advice and so on, and, and I... And people want to make money, like, and they want to make money straight away, and it's like, that's well, no, not going to happen. Mm. <laughs> like, if you want to make money, you shouldn't, you shouldn't start a podcast. I think. <laughs> exactly. I mean, but if you you should start a podcast if you have something to say, if you mm. have a story to tell, if you have like, um, if you have a um, a vision of something. And I think I I made a podcast that I that I myself wanted to listen to. Yeah, that's the key. I think. Yeah, it's, and I guess it was the same for you. Yeah, um, it started for me as a hobby. I mean, I actually, I actually started a different podcast called Two Inspired Guys. It was me and my best friend from college, and we wanted to talk to people that had made a life out of whatever they were passionate about okay, okay. in any field. I didn't so know that. It was going to be an interview show. Where the two of us would co-host it and just talk to people. He had some, like his kind of thing was like restaurant business and food and, and that sort of stuff, and mine was sailing. So talk to people in these various fields with the, the thread being they do a non-traditional career and have made a lifestyle out of it. And we did we did 30 episodes. Wow. Um, but it was, it was, it's, it's embarrassing to listen to now. I mean, it, but... Is, is it still out there? Yeah, it's still live. It's, you can still find it. And I have visions of like bringing it back one day because I still think it's it's still a concept that I'm interested in. Because I also, aside from the sailing, I have very deep-rooted entrepreneurial instincts that come from my grandfather uh, and my 
they've had there's been a family business ever since the 19 my dad still runs a restaurant that my grandfather started in 1952 so that part you know i grew up in a household that was very non-traditional my dad never had a real job i never had a real job um so i I say too if i wasn't in sailing i would be doing something in something for myself bottom line um so that kind of got me started on and then it ended up being a lot of sailing people because that was my world and my friend ryan we weren't in the same town we did everything on skype and it was really hard to do it so i'm just going to start my own sailing one and then uh it just kind of went from there um but it it was a chance it was an excuse for me to talk to people that i wanted to talk to that otherwise might not have talk to me just over a cup of coffee. Yeah, but was it like famous people? Yeah, some and and some who weren't. I mean, I've done 176 episodes now. A lot of them are famous people in the sailing world. But what you quickly realize, you probably have had the same experience in the outdoor world is they seem famous in their world, but they're just normal people. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have they're not real celebrities, so you have access and you have a personal touch to it that you can come across in an interview like this that I think is different with real celebrities, mm-hmm. pop culture celebrities, that kind of thing. But do you get a lot of, um, like, do you get like, emails and, like, when, when people meet you that they are into this? Um, n- Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Non-traditional way of living? Like, because that's a really big thing for me as well. Mm. And that's something that I'm really inspired of, and I love talking to someone if I have a friend or someone mm. who are in the 
in the same like state of mind that I was a couple of years ago and that they want to do something and I I love like inspiring people like that. Yeah, I get that. That's probably the most common email because I, you know, a, the medium of podcasting in general is consumed by younger people just by default because it's a tech mm-hmm. thing. So I get a lot of 20 something kids that want that ask that question, how do you how do you get started? How do you take that one? And and to be fair, the qu- answer you gave it still doesn't answer the core of the question is because it's it's the fear that's involved people of of stepping out of their comfort zone and why some people do it and why others mm-hmm. don't because a lot of people share those feelings and those thoughts but it's hard to pin down why some people go for it and some don't yeah and I don't, i'm not expecting you to answer it i don't think anybody can answer it it's it is just a feeling but to be able to encourage and inspire other people to like that it is okay to take those kind yeah. of risks I think, um, and I think maybe what has to do with it too, I mean, you and I both having this sort of outdoor wilderness type of thing, like it doesn't seem as risky when you're okay not having anything. Mm. If you can be content living in a tent in the middle of the woods for a week, (laughs) well, if I take a risk and the business I start fails, if I start back from square one again, that's not the end of the world. You know, you want to avoid getting comfortable, I guess, in one sense. Um, yeah, maybe. But also it's when I when I talk to people about starting my own business and and people starting their own business, it's kind of two different um kind of discussions or two different kind of people. It's either the people who they would love to start their own business but they don't know what that would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um but and then you have the people who who would love to start their own business and they know exactly what they would do, but they don't dare to yeah. take the steps. And that's, um, I guess, what you're aiming at. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's and I think the, the people that want to do it that don't know where to start, I mean, it's super cliche, but I think it's true, is what, ask yourself, what would you do if you didn't need to make money? Yeah, it's, and that's, you know this um, uh, Alan Watts, mm-hmm. you know of him, mm-hmm. a, a British uh, like philosopher, yeah. philosopher. And I have this, there's this like, excerpt from one of his lectures it's like a three minutes a three minute like you you can find it on youtube if money was no object and i've sent that to numerous people like numerous friends like having these discussions and i'm like sending them that youtube clip <laughs> because it's it makes sense it's super cliche in one way but it's it makes sense like find something that you that you love and you will be a master of it and uh and and yeah, and break and break this, I don't know this this spell of like uh, working with something that you don't like to get money that you don't need to buy stuff that you don't need and you don't. Yeah. So it's well, this has been a the, vicious circle. The 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 two. There's really I'm really lucky to have the parents I had because my dad was extremely practical and was the entrepreneurial mindset. My mom was very spiritual in a universal sense not religious at all, but spir- spiritual and, and f- philosophical. So her mantra to me was always, do what you love and the money will follow. Yeah. Ever since high school, that was just, she just beat it into my brain. And then my dad perfectly sort of uh, accompanied that with a f- his mantra was, there's always room at the top. Meaning if you're the best at whatever, you, whatever it is you're doing, if you're one of the best, 
you will always have work hmm. because you will always be in demand. Yeah, that's true. I never heard it put like that before, but, but it's, yeah. So regardless sense. of what your field is, if yeah. you're good at it, you will have something to do hmm. on some level. And I love that. It's basically find a passion and work really hard at it. It's yeah. not, there's no shortcut. It's not difficult. I'm very fond of this Henry Ford uh, quote that Steve Jobs also uh, followed up on that the, uh, they did not believe in like marketing research right like when it when they wanted to introduce a new product yeah they didn't give a shit about the market the public doesn't it, know what they want exactly yeah. if like the hence the henry ford quote like if i wanted to give the people what they wanted i would give them a faster horse yeah <laughs> and uh, i think that's super good and and i'm not too like uh, um uh set me on the side of uh I compare myself to Henry Ford and so on but <laughs> I, I I knew that I knew that well I knew that if I would make this product that people wanted this podcast this product that that people that I wanted to listen to I wanted like people like me would probably want to listen to that as well mm-hmm. so dare to uh as a recommendation to dare to uh like believe that your own ideas are good And also, it doesn't have to be so permanent. Like, okay, so you mm. quit your job. I mean, so give it a try for like six months and or like work 50%, like work part-time. Uh, if you want to move someplace, well, do it. It doesn't mean that you can never, ever return to where you come from. And I think in Sweden, I would, I'm guessing that it's, we are very more um, rooted in a way. Uh, like, oh, oh, so you're moving to, so you're moving to Stockholm now. Well, Well, bye bye. <laughs> See you never ever again. But I mean, it's and as, and if someone moves to Stockholm and then two years later or something return decide to to move back, it's like oh, so they moved back. They didn't make it. <laughs> and I, it's for me, it's very uh, and I, I probably I was probably like that before as well. But it's very uh, I don't know. It's just try it out. Mm. It doesn't have to be uh, uh, you know for for good. No, and also along the same lines, I mean, you mentioned all your years of education. Well, none of that stuff's ever wasted. I mean, I can't tell you how many creative things I've started and just that got swept under the rug because they didn't go anywhere. But like all that stuff has, you take bits and pieces from all these different Definitely, experiences yeah. to create things that actually do stick. Yeah, um, and it's uh, like no matter what, it it shamed, shaped me into the into the person I am now, and uh, uh, persons I've I've gotten to know along the way, and and everything. So it's it now these days I'm not bitter at all. Um, yeah. Like three or four years ago, you know, paying the, my student loan back and so on, I was bitter because it felt like I had this like academic heavy backpack mm. <laughs> rucksack like weighing me down but but i've left that behind me and now i'm just you know i'm just a happy camper on your point of the you know giving people what they want versus making what you want to make i still struggle with that you know we have the business where we take people ocean sailing and i get nervous when i set up the calendar of where we're going to go because we can decide completely where we're going to go when we're going to go there And I worry like, oh, maybe people want to, maybe they'll be easier to sell if we go back to the Caribbean or this and that. And and I've talked to mentors who have similar businesses and they've basically just assured me, go where you want to go and people will come. Yeah. And 
But it's hard to do that, especially when like, this is high stakes. I mean, my whole business is riding on this. I have to sell these trips. That's how I make a living. But I still struggle with that. Like, oh, man, I st- just, just today, me and I were talking, I wonder how many people are going to actually book our Arctic trips and is that going to be harder and blah, blah, blah. But, but, I mean, so far I have no reason to think they won't. It's just it's, you still have those doubts. But that's the um, to analyze your, your business. That's the core. You have the sailboat. You have East Beyond. And uh, and with the with the with the boat you you set out uh, a route for like one year ahead of something, mm. and people can con- get like reach out to you and 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 say that hey I want to I want to be on that stage and they like sign pay- up yeah so the po- and and they pay you for that and then they they it's not like a working crew they yes it is but they also pay to be there yeah so basically they can be as as active or not in the crew as they want to be. 99% of the time, they want to come along either to scratch an itch or to get experience so they can go do it on their own boat someday. So they get experience with us in a in a as much of a controlled environment as you can have in the yeah. middle of the ocean. But you get you get people that never have set foot on a sailboat before. Not often, but yes, we have. We had a guy, our very first ever trip from Annapolis up to Lunenburg was 700 miles, uh, a bus driver from Canada who had, he'd read an article back in like the 80s or something about being able to see the stars down to the horizon. Wow. And he's like, I want to see that one day. And he, he always <laughs> wanted to learn how to sail, but he always wanted to, to do an ocean passage. So he said, well, I'm not going to waste all my money taking sailing lessons at the club if I don't like the ocean passage. I want <laughs> to see, see if I like that. <laughs> if I like that, and I think I will, then I'll go back and learn how to sail. So, so that's what he did. He and I were watch partners. He steered... I couldn't get him off the wheel. He steered the whole time. Every time we were on watch, he steered the full three hours, and he absolutely loved it. And he went on. He did a trip to South Africa to take sailing lessons down there, and wow. has continued it. So it was a life changer for him. Yeah, it's it's and that's it's really cool to see that. Um, you know, I've done a lot of miles now offshore, and it's easy to take things for granted that you do a lot. And I, I'm conscious about not taking it for granted, but it's a lot easier not to take it for granted when you're seeing it through fresh eyes every time when you get to see the joy that people that haven't seen that setting before and you remember oh yeah i know what he's looking at. i know how he feels i love that um do you hear that a lot that you you offer something to people that change their lives all the time it's super cool one specific trip Um, not with our business, actually. Mia and I worked for a company called Broadreach um, for a summer, and it was basically, we joke now that what we do is adult Broadreach because back then it was high school kids that would go on these, they did expedition-type stuff in various um, settings around the world, but we were involved in their sailing programs in the Caribbean. And I'm still in touch with some of these kids who were 16, 17, 18 at the time. This was in 2008. So now they're like, out of college, having kids and stuff, and they still are in touch with us a little bit here and there about how much that experience, wow. it was a 32-day trip living on the boat, impacted their lives. And that's that's super cool. And I, I still think, of all, I'm most passionate about influencing young people into following their passions. Like, if I can give anything back, that's that's what I want. And to that end, we have an intern working for us now, Liz, who is super cool and like she's in the middle of changing her life and stuff like that. And I, I like that more than anything, but I wanted to ask you 
you've had some really interesting experiences because of the podcast, got invited on these different trips and stuff. I mean, what, this is sort of a two part question. Like, were you, when you were working your normal job, were you doing active sports and, and stuff like that? Or how did you evolve to that? And how do you, what have been some of the cool stories you've had because of the podcast? Mm, I guess, um, the podcast came to me in a, well, well, that sounded very religious. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast came to me uh, at a at a at a moment in uh, at a period of my time, I would say, when I kind of, uh, as we talked about earlier, that I kind of reconnected with with my roots, um, like going like snowboarding again. How I really really appreciated that, and together with friends, we went up like hiking in the mountains, mountains in the autumn time, and went like trail running and so on. Um, so that was my activities, I would say, like hiking, trail running, and winter, like uh, ski touring, mm-hmm. or like with a split board. Um, so that was that was uh, actually w- that was one one door into this uh, this uh, husky universe that I created, <laughs> because I I went up to um, like uh, three winters in a row or something. We went up at a at a ski touring camp organized by Haglovs up north in Sweden, and uh, there I made some like some of the first like connections within the outdoor industry. And uh, when I had put out my first episode, first ever episode, I like same evening or like the day after, I, I sent an email to the marketing manager, the then marketing manager of Haglovs, and I'm like, "Hey, you gotta listen to this now," and he's like. I've already done it. It's really good. Wow. I really, I really like what you're doing. Who and was, was the like, first episode? That was uh, Mikael Lindnord, the uh, adventure racer, adventure racer who had ended up adopting a dog from Ecuador. Okay. <laughs> um, and that led to uh, uh, the the connection with Hog Gloves led to an interview with uh, with Marcus Hellner, which is like Olympic. Yeah, the cross country like, yeah, skier. Yeah. yeah. So that I was uh, I was on the wind. <laughs> uh so it gave me a really good start and uh so I was to answer your question I was already uh I had started going on like ski trips and so on um and this gave extra fuel of course um I think also it gives you extra almost credibility in a way because you're talking to the people Yes, some of them, like Marcus Hellner, are on a totally different level. Yeah. But you relate to them in a way because you've done these activities. You're living the lifestyle mm-hmm. as opposed to being a pure journalist where you're just, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, I know, definitely. Uh, but that's one of my fears that I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be like a bystander. I don't want to be a commentator. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to be able to participate, participate in as many uh, activities as possible. And I am not at all a very uh, i don't see myself as a very like physical person i i have endurance and i have a certain amount of will power <laughs> but i'm not i don't see myself as a avid uh, i don't know um I'm, I'm i'm a pretty good like i guess i'm a pretty good snowboarder when it comes to the the ski touring part but and like I said, I have good endurance, but 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 still, I I I really love. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I 
I really cherish the possibilities I have now to kind of learn, um, to kind of step. This is my, here goes. This is kind of my chance to, um, I, I, I will never be, and I could have never, never have been this sponsored athlete right. of any kind. But this is kind of my way to still kind of open the door into their world, step in and, and you know, give it a try. Mm-hmm. Because the, the the fantastic thing is once you get to, uh, you end up like doing activities with these guys and girls and you find out they're not like divas and they're not like um, smart asses of any kind. It's like super humble people and you never feel like you're in the way or something and they just welcome you with open arms and that's fantastic and and uh to getting to learn like um, i don't know going like swim run adventure camps with with really good like fit and able people and 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 be able to participate to some degree it's uh, of course it's mind-blowing mm. with i met a guy in new zealand um the same trip i met mia on actually uh he was a professional triathlete that had a, an iron man in wanaka and he ended up winning he was staying in our hostel but it was the same same thing. Like, wow, this guy's—he was a professional athlete. It's what he did for a living, and he was super humble, just hanging out with us in the hostel. No. In the hostel, we ended up volunteering for the race, uh, and working there, and and he won. But it was just really cool, like you said, open and people just—they're just normal people. Because um, I think it's uh, these are the kind of people that um, they made that decision to. Yeah. I will shape my life around what I love. And usually people like that tend to be like very decent folks, yeah. <laughs> nice people yeah. and inspiring people. I can relate to the, your, your fear of not wanting to be a, a bystander because we, for the last, well, since 2008, have worked on and off for a sailing event management company. And it always killed me. I, I it was a, it, like on the surface, it sounded like a dream job. Like you get to travel a ton, work in sailing, make your own schedule, blah, 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 get a good salary every month. But... I was always the one doing all the briefings and here's what the weather's going to be. And then I'd stand there and untie their dock lines and watch everyone else sail away. And it's like, this is backwards. I want to be them. Mm-hmm. And I ne- that never sat well with me. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. But it was always, it was never the end. It was always, okay, what can I do now with this experience to then let me be the guy on the other end of that? And now that's where we're at, which is, which is really cool. So I, I know the feeling of being the fear of being left behind i guess <laughs> but um you've been to iceland and svalbard and yeah. you've done some of these amazing trips yeah. we're headed there next year on, oh, yeah. on our I boat know. so what can you tell me about uh, either of those places <sighs> yes yeah, i mean the uh, was it two years ago two or three years ago i had this chance to go to uh, to svalbard on like a 10 day like uh, ski touring trip mm. like we were based on a boat not a sailboat but a, like an old built like 1955 or something like a old school super charming super charming boat um, and uh, coming home after that I remember like for two three days no joke I was depressed because I I didn't want it to be over like because it was such a it was such an adventure mm. um, like great crew like awesome crew, awesome people, and of course, wake up every day, have breakfast, jump into the Zodiacs, uh, jump ashore, and then go ski touring on like uh, peaks and, and, and glaciers that probably 
like no one have ever skied those areas and we did it and um yeah it was amazing and of course to be able to we saw one polar bear cool uh the season afterwards they saw like 10 (laughs) (laughs) but uh it's it's kind of of course you want to see them but you want to choose the time when you see them yeah um but it's uh, svalbard is uh, it's it's really amazing it's um it's like it's proper wilderness it's it's um and you have to remember of course that you are very very remote and like help is like a couple of hours with with helicopter mm. away so you should mind your you should know what you're doing of how course. did they handle that like the 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 outfit that you were with like um i mean we went with um two like uh licensed mountain guides mm-hmm. um that i have like 100 percent confidence in and uh they had been there before uh, and they also had a setup with uh, there were always like one one guy in the uh, staying in the zodiac with a with a rifle to kind of scout uh scout the 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 shoreline for polar bears and then being up on the uh like ski touring and, and and then skiing eventually skiing down of course we never took any uh chances they always stayed on the on the paths and and slopes and areas in the mountains where they they knew that well this is this is safe mm. it brings up the point we sort of touched on before of responsibility in these wilderness areas um you're you're the second non-sailing person I've had on the podcast. Another one was a guy called Drew Hardesty, who was a avalanche rescue guy out in Utah when I was on a ski trip out there. And it's the same concept because you, you have, especially in the Arctic, you get a lot more people going there and it is pretty much, yeah, you need to get the permits and this and that, but there's nothing stopping you from going there. Same thing with crossing an ocean. Nobody's telling you, no, you can't do that. And then you get these accidents that happen, these whole high-profile things, because people end up in positions they have no business being in because they don't have the education and the training and the knowledge and the res- the respect mainly. But the, and they still rely on people coming coming there to rescue them. Yeah, they have this idea of hitting the big red button, yeah. so to speak. And I mean, how have you seen that in the people you've talked to in the in the wilderness sort of land-based wilderness stuff? How is that addressed? I would say like everyone I get in contact with. They are highly professional and they are extremely aware of what they are doing. Uh, and when I talk about like mountain awareness and so on, if anything, I think the the broad uh, like what, what what people what people would say is that at the end of the day, it's you have to respect everyone's decision, like. Okay, so I can tell you that you should not go down this slope because it's it's uh, avalanche prone terrain and so on. You should I I think you you really you shouldn't. But if that person is like, well, yes, I know that, but I still want to ski this. Like you, it it's it's in the end, it's it's down to that each person's um, decision in a way and that person's freedom. I don't know. I guess. No, I see that, but how does it impact? Like, if that person does that and causes an accident, the the ultimate, um, I guess, side effect of that is that there may be regulation to stop people from accessing those places yeah. in the first place. That's, I guess, the f- not the fear, but that's the consequence that mm-hmm. comes out of that. Same thing, 
You can cross an ocean with your family, no problem, now, because there's, nothing, there's no law saying you can't. But maybe there will be if more yeah. of this stuff keeps happening. It's the, kind of the, you know, one bad egg spoils it for everyone. Does that, that must come up in, in mountaineering, especially the idea of who's responsible, I, I guess. I guess it's a different thing in the U.S. too because we have such a litigious society that they're more prone to, oh, well, if, if he causes an avalanche, I can sue him. Yeah. That kind yeah, of stuff. probably. You because don't have that as much here. No, no. And you, we don't have these like lines that you shouldn't cross or something on the yeah. gates to yeah. the off-piste areas. You, you don't have that system in, in, in Scandinavia. It's much more open for 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 <laughs> for good and bad i guess mm. um so i don't know i actually i don't no i i don't know what to add to that actually it's um i mean it's refreshing i guess to to not have that here that i mean that alamans ret thing you talked about earlier that's a perfect example of that would never exist no in the us that's just a foreign concept mm. Well, that's private property. You get shot if you go over there. <laughs> so, but does that happen? Like, is is that common that people decide to cross the Atlantic Ocean and then they end up in trouble? I it's I don't wouldn't it's not common, but it's it I guess it's my world. I I read I anytime something happens, I I know about it. So it's more of like once you're in once you're embedded so deeply in some in whatever it is you, you hear more about it yeah. so you think maybe it's more common than it is um but but inevitably there's always a reason as to why something happened and it's always down to the choices the person made f- long before they ever left not always but a lot of times it's rarely down to bad luck um it, it is my opinion on the matter and that would that's d- very debatable um but choices people make with regards to the type of boat they tend to do it on and, and all this other stuff, because you get, it's different than than going skiing, for example, because you're relying on your physical fitness and your knowledge of the terrain. But <clears throat> when you're crossing an ocean, you're relying on the boat itself. You've, you've got to take care of the boat, which will then take care of you. But there's different choices in that, and there's different, it's always a compromise. It's You want a boat that's going to be comfortable to live on when you're not sailing, but those the things that make it comfortable to live on at the dock are exactly what you don't want when you're out in the ocean with big waves and the potential for heavy weather. So a lot of times people tend to choose towards the comfort side and that later then gets them in trouble. Mm. And that's what I beat to death in these podcasts is, you know, make your decisions based on what the boat was designed to do. And don't be surprised. People are always surprised when stuff happens to, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go off-roading in a in a car that's not four-wheel drive. It's the same sort of idea, but it's I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a different subject. Yeah, I'm gonna bore you with this technicality of it anyway <laughs> with sailing. No, but it's 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 all it's um it's very interesting. And this also this when 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 tragedy happens and someone someone gets killed uh, like on the mountains or something you always hear this like well at least at least he or she did like died doing what they love what they love and i guess i can see that from from two perspectives and of course it's yes they did but still it's it's such a tragedy and and um uh, sometimes it feels like the i don't know if it's all that good that um 
kind of the, the in a way it's kind of i don't know if it's like glorifying the Uh, living on the living on the edge like if the if they glorify I, that a bit too much i, I don't, don't know it's i don't think it's from my point of view i think it's bullshit because i'm terrified of dying offshore like i talked to my therapist about this like legitimately it's it is not worth it to me i don't like it that much to give up everything i have like but at the same time I can't do anything else. It's not a win. It's a, it's a, there's no such thing as dying, doing what you love. But at the same time, I can't, I wouldn't be happy living a life without doing that. But that doesn't mean I'm willing to die for it. But it's not, you can't resolve that conundrum. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a paradox. that's not resolvable. I will, I I would never say, yes, it's worth dying for. It's not. But at the same time, I'm not going to stop doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so because I But mean I there's there's um there's always uh there's always a scale, isn't it? I mean um you can you can spend your life sailing uh and and you can like for 95% of the uh the choices you make, you can you can always make safe choices. Yeah. But you don't have to uh you don't have to I, I can't come I know too little of of sailing, but you don't have uh, I'm going to solo cross the whatever stream and 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 bay and I, I yeah <laughs> no i know what you i know what you're saying but you don't always have to choose the most extreme correct uh, in fact you i've choose it the opposite the absolute most conservative way to get from a to b because you got it, it's mainly choosing your seasons on the weather and this kind of stuff but but i think what i fear is and i've and i've thought about this a lot what i when i'm the most scared on any of these offshore passages is when I get too far inside my head and it's not that something's actually happening on the boat it's that I'm thinking about what possibly could happen so it's it's the fear of, like anything else the fear of not knowing so like the worst thing is when you're offshore and the weather's getting worse and you don't know how bad it's going to get before it gets starts to get better again that's really hard but when I reflect on every time there has been a major incident or something you don't go and I'm glad that I react this way but I don't get scared. You just you you do what needs to be done and I actually change into like this very laser focused adrenaline mode. So I think it's weird to say this, but I think if it came to the point where I we were getting overwhelmed by the weather at sea or something, ironically I don't think I would be scared. If I actually would die offshore, I don't think I would be scared in the instant before I died. But I guess I'm afraid of being afraid in that instant. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I, uh, for you, I mean, you are a, you are a sailor, and and when you uh, set your foot on on your boat and you put on your, I don't know, your sailing clothes, My little captain's <laughs> your little hat. captain's hat. <laughs> no, but you you enter a you enter a mode and you enter mm-hmm. a role, and 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 in that role you, uh, in that character, you will you will not get easily uh, scared. And so I wouldn't say too, and I don't ident- I don't identify as a sailor. I would identify more as I. When I'm in that mode, I'm I'm in the professional mode, the, yeah. the mode of the leader, mm-hmm. and that applies, I think, to whatever outdoor pursuit you're doing. I think that leadership aspect is is what's crucial in all this stuff we've been talking about. And I don't identify as a sailor. I, I never did. I just I don't know why, but I do identify as a as a person in charge, and I take that very seriously. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's the mode I switch into. When when you get the chance to. Uh 
to to sail to Iceland, and when you will, because you really should, and you, you I know you will meet up with with Captain Siggy. Mm. Um, you should discuss this because I really don't want to uh, to uh, to state uh, his his thoughts on the matter. But because I, first of all, I don't remember it like entirely for word for word. But he was very. We had a, a long discussion about this casualties when it comes like casualties in the mountains versus casualties on the ocean and he was very uh, he had very uh, strong opinions upon that, uh, on this on this topic and he va- made a uh, some very interesting parallels to like the fishing industries in, on Iceland that he like 20 30 years ago it was kind of like yeah the people lost at sea they were kind of well they were they were like yeah they died at sea you know it was glorifying glorifying yeah. in a way and he could see similar trends in the like for instance in the backcountry industry as well uh, or the backcountry scene and he was very annoyed at that and um he said he he uh, well that you can you can you can work your way around that no one needs to no one needs to die it's a matter of like changing perspective and and education uh, because that's what they did when it came to the fishing industry and um, the the life at sea. Uh, and that was very interesting. Mm. On the same level, um, I forget what I was going to say now. Uh, crap. It was about... Oh, no, I know what it was about. It's, it's the sort of the attitude that um, that fighter pilots often... You often hear fighter pilots talk about where if, if there is an accident and something happens, the other people in that peer group tend to think, well, what did the person do wrong? Because... It couldn't have been bad luck because if it's bad luck, that means it could happen to me. Yeah. But if it was a user, a human error, that means well, I'm better. I was better than him, so mm-hmm. to speak. And I, and I'm guilty of that as well. You look at different things. Oh well, okay. Uh, what would I have done differently? But so, but sometimes sometimes it is just bad luck, and that's I think where my fear comes in. You do this stuff long enough, and I mean, stuff happens. Yeah. And that you can't control. You control everything you possibly can, but ultimately, going into the wilderness in any of these, you're you're at the mercy of nature. But that's also the attraction to it in the first yeah. place. So, but oh, I just have to add that as a combination of at the level of my, I don't know, mountain skills, and a combination of that and uh, the fact that I'm fortunate enough to have gone on. On fantastic uh, tours with with very professional people, I rarely, if if ever, encounter what I would say like dangerous or extreme situations. Mm. I'm, I'm uh, I think I'm, I'm 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 living a big part of my life on the very safe on the safe side of of things. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, on that note, what are you what do you what have you not done yet that you still have in front of you like what's how are you going to evolve this because it seems like you've figured out a pretty nice niche for yourself in your business and your podcast and in the other marketing things you're involved in and it's it sounds like you've got it pretty well figured out or is that just what it looks like <laughs> yeah it's that's the plan too it's it's all about the facade <laughs> <laughs> no it's you know people people ask me like for instance like who's your dream guest and so on but in a way, I think if I would, the ultimate setup now would be to make fewer episodes, but to put like way much more work into every episode. Like, because I do mainly like you do, like interviews, like 
60 to 90 minute long interviews with uh, with profiles in the outdoor industry and um I also do some like for instance going to Svalbard and going to Iceland and going to whatever I have done some some episodes where it's where I'm kind of a narrator and I make kind of an episode about this trip and I really really love that but it takes of course much more time when it comes to post production planning and everything but if I could choose I would do maybe one episode every month and that would be like a portrait of a person for instance if I would do a a portrait on you like uh, it would be an interview with you where we sit down and record the interview but I would also spend time with you like for instance on East Beyond like out sailing so it would be uh, and and kind of a uh, a smooth mix between the life on the boat with uh, the the guy behind the uh, the guy behind the boat sort More of documentary style definitely stuff, yeah yeah mm-hmm. you know. uh but that's when it comes to like to get the economy to work and working with partners and sponsors it's uh i think at least it would be uh it would be uh, a bit more difficult i think mm. yeah i don't know if you it's i've had a hard time um just getting people to understand that like what even a podcast is and yeah. now finally Still. we're over the hump with that yeah. and and getting sponsors to do it, but we're still a little bit, I think, ahead of the curve is tar- in f- terms of media. Like people are still stuck in the magazine format, yeah. at least in something sailing. something that they can hold, like uh, grasp or something. That yeah, they from can the sponsor side of it. I yeah, mean, exactly, it's, it's exactly. impossible to. Well, I should say, Williams and Plath has been uh, been awesome. They've signed on for a full year, and they're finally now establishing. Okay, that's this is a thing. Now let's mm. see where it can go. Mm. So, no, that sounds very cool. Yeah. Do you have concrete plans to do that, or is this just no? An idea? It's just you know I have this. I have so many like weird ideas like flo- floating around, floating around in my head, but uh, and I'm trying to uh, you know uh, kind of mix it all together and uh, get something productive out of it. But yeah. uh, but what I also really really enjoy and what I'm curious of is all the uh, the opportunities that may arise like up ahead. Um, to uh, it would be. Uh, uh, super interesting to get involved with some kind of I don't know video project or book project or something. So it's you know you never know. But it's all in the creative vein. Sounds like yeah 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 yeah. Cool, cool. Well, this has been fun. Yeah, it has, and hopefully someone will be able to make something out of this. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for the time, Magnus. Thank you. Husky is reported with support from Naturkompaniet and Holiday Club Åre. It is produced by Husky Productions. The music is made by Joel Mull. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.